You're listening to The Patchwork Girl and Friends. I'm Kendra, and I love having interesting conversations with my friends about art, media, life, the universe, and everything. And that is what this podcast is all about. Once again, it is a pleasure to have Corey on this podcast. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. And we are talking about something that, for several different reasons, is close to Corey's heart. Corey, you want to talk about the great mouse detective? Yeah, I do. Um, (laughs) I actually wanted to reach out and see if you wanted to do this one while I was re-watching it. I spent a month back visiting some friends in London this summer and went, oh, well, you know, I, I have some downtime. I may as well watch this film I haven't seen since I was a tiny urchin. And I found myself starting to take notes about uh, just some things that caught me off guard or that I didn't expect or that you don't notice when you're watching it as a small child. And also that I noticed just from time living in London and yeah, different things that I went, oh, it's interesting they made that decision. And then you sent that to me. Yes. And could you could you just read off some of the highlights? Because just reading your thoughts is so amusing (laughs) um well i have it separated into categories for things that uh i loved things that i have some very real questions about and things that uh caught me by surprise but i didn't know how to feel (laughs) i think one of my favorites i'm looking at the picture you sent me is in larger text than some of the other things the Thames is a salty river, in parentheses. The Thames they, is they a salty cared. river. They did. It actually, it's, they knew, slash, they cared. It was a really fun detail. There's a moment where uh, Basil does some, who, of course, if you haven't seen it, or if you have and just need a refresher, is the uh, mouse version of Sherlock Holmes, and actually lives, I think, in the walls or just underneath 221B Baker Street. At one point, he does this experiment to find where a piece of paper came from, and he traces it to salt water and goes, oh, it's along the riverfront, which if you're just thinking, you know, as an American with basic river geography, I'm, I'm mostly from Colorado, so I don't, you know, I'm from a very arid climate. I'm not sure what most people think of, but most rivers are freshwater. And that's what you would usually think of. So the fact that they would go, oh, this is salt water, therefore it's the riverfront, was just, it warmed my my little heart. I was like, oh, the, the Thames is a salty river. And it's tidal as well. It was just a, it was a nice detail to include. Yes. So they at yes. least probably visited um, or talked to someone who had visited, <laughs> which is more than you can say for some properties and more research than I expected them to put into a children's cartoon. So made me happy. It might be good uh, to say kind of what, where we're coming from on, uh, I would be curious what your first introduction to Sherlock Holmes was, because I imagine for a lot of people, this was their first introduction to these stories. Yeah, I believe it was. And I'm trying to remember, I, I have actually read one of the Basil of Baker Street books. And it was one of the first chapter books I ever read. I don't remember very much of it. I remember, um, I thought it was really hard at the time, but you know, I was like seven. So when I had just learned how to read. That's fair. 
I but, actually didn't know these were based on books. Like I knew Sherlock Holmes, but I had no idea Basil of Baker Street was a thing. Yeah, it's a little book series. And I'm trying to remember how many. I didn't read very many, um, but I, I have very strong memories of one. It took me a really long time to actually figure out it was playing off of Sherlock Holmes because I was introduced to either the book or the Great Mouse Detective first. And then ah. Sherlock Holmes much, much later in life. So <laughs> I even remember having slight confusion over the movie and the book because the book is very, very different. And the movie really scared me as a kid. It has some pretty disturbing moments that we can get into later. But even as an adult, I was like, oh, I, I remember this and I haven't seen this film for probably a good 15 years. My introduction to Sherlock Holmes, I kind of went the other way around because I had just, I had also just learned to read, but I was in my uh, little elementary school library looking for a book and I could find nothing that piqued my interest. I wasn't a very enthusiastic reader. I had a very slow start at it, was behind most of the class. And I read the title, Sherlock Holmes, on this collection of short stories and picked it up going, well, at least I recognize that name, just sort of floating in the cultural consciousness. And I uh, kind of turned, flipped through the pages until I saw an illustration that looked cool and read The Adventure of the Speckled Band, Unabridged, which was one of my first actual stories I'd ever read. And it really does stay with you for anyone who's read that one. I had probably seen Great Mouse Detective around the same time, if not a little before I read the Sherlock Holmes stories, so it sort of grew up with both. Did you make the connection that they were connected? <laughs> I did, yeah, but mostly because, again, I was reading an illustrated copy, so it had, like, the charming little deerstalker cap that he is never described as wearing in the books, but was frequently used in illustrations. It was a lot of visual cues that kind of clued me in, that, like, oh, this is the same kind of character. There's the human world and then the sort of mouse world. At that point, I was very into Rats of Nim. I was very into the Rescuers and Rescuers Down Under. So I was like, oh, this is like Sherlock Holmes, but in uh, this world. Ooh, Ratatouille is probably an extension of that. Now I want something on the rodent universe. The rodent but, universe yeah. of Disney? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and The Secret of Nim. Oh, yeah. I have watched this movie on and off over the years, The Great Mouse Detective, and it has pretty much scared me every time. And and what's weird is thinking about it, I remember the scary parts, but then I watch it and I'm like, oh man, it's it's just really great. It's a it's a fun movie. It's a lot of fun. It is interesting though, when looking at when looking at it, you mentioned that it always frightened you. And I definitely had that association as well, but I think some of the stuff that's frightening in it. I, it's interesting because I kind of found two different ways it can be frightening, particularly to a child. Though as an adult, you can still see it. And one is that it incorporates a lot of jump scares. I think this was actually <laughs> yes. my introduction to the jump scare. 
just the moment where they're approaching the crib, looking for a baby, and there's a lot of buildup before that, like, demonic bat creature swings around. That still does it for me. I, I think it's that that whole scene in the toy shop where oh, yeah. all none of the toys look friendly or everything is just really off. And yes. and now looking at it as an adult, it's like, oh, very interesting. The lighting, the camera angles, everything is meant to make you feel very on edge. Yeah. And even if you know that it's coming, even if you've seen it several times before, watching it again, it's still, it's still, oh gosh, he's about to jump out. He's, oh no, oh no, this is coming. They did that masterfully, but uh, kind of a weird choice for a child's film. I think the other kind of fear that I experienced watching the film that I couldn't necessarily put it to words um, until years and years later is, and, and this actually connects pretty well, I think, to the Sherlock Holmes stories as written by Conan Doyle. There's a moment where you have this character who you are so used to seeing as hyper-competent and on top of every situation, this being Basil, and in kind of the climactic scene as he's fighting off against, uh, facing off against Radigan, who we, we need to talk about. Oh, yeah. Um, but as he's facing him off, there's a moment where Radigan becomes extremely feral. Mm-hmm. And you see his face, and it's it's terror and there are a few moments in the film there's that one where he's absolutely terrified and as a child watching this I think that's one of the only times I had I had seen heroes be you know sad or concerned or reacting in very large dramatic ways to problems I hadn't ever seen a quiet terror in a cartoon characters eyes before and that left me really unsettled and there's also a moment where he's captured and just seems defeated he just gives up and I said in my notes at the time I'm pretty sure this is how I learned what despair was and what that word meant because you see a lot of the film as a child kind of through the eyes of this little girl who he's trying to reunite with her father so you're used to, okay, they're the competent adult characters and then the character who's a kid, like me in this circumstance. But seeing that just abject, all right, I guess we die here. Um, there's nothing I can do. I and my friend are about to be killed. And it's, it's not preventable. Uh, just kind of seeing that spark leave his eyes was terrifying. And an incredibly an incredibly emotionally heavy moment and of course you know is uh is you know basically watson um talks him out of it he comes around you see that spark return he finds his way out of the situation and it's it feels even more victorious because there was this this nadir this dark like low point i'm gonna give full credit to uh direction and animation and voice acting on that because they sold terror and despair and I at that point didn't even know what those were I think the scenes uh hold up well with a rewatch and watching it as an adult I'm like oh this is this is what it was this is what I was feeling and 
I can watch that through the lens of, all right, but I know they'll be fine. He'll figure it out. It'll be okay. This is, this'll be fine. But I, I think it was an interesting choice. And I don't actually, uh, I don't think it was a bad decision. If I were ever to have kids or to be watching some kids and be like, oh, hey, let's put this movie in. I think there would have to be some discussions about uh, specific scenes, one of them being the just giving up and being ready to die scene, because that's, that's some pretty heavy stuff. On a much less heavy note, I would want to have a discussion with them on the weird stripper saloon scene. And to be clear, <laughs> before we tear into this, I do actually love this movie. It has a special place in my heart. But there were some weird choices in here. There were. There were some very weird choices. You want to rip into that scene? <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, um, and for anyone who doesn't know me or if I haven't mentioned it before, and I probably have, I lived in London for a few years. Some very close loved ones there. I try to get back to visit when I can. Uh, so I'm not just saying this as, you know, I've watched some BBC shows. But uh, pub culture in London and just the UK and most of the world actually is very different than bar culture in America. And in this pub scene where, you know, they've, they've taken the clues and they go in, it doesn't feel like an English pub. It feels like an American speakeasy. Like, it feels very hush-hush that there's alcohol being served and there's a stripper on stage, which is, a again, weird call for a children's film. And I'm not just going, oh, I, I think that, you know, she's coded as a stripper. There is a lyric in her song where she says, hey, fellas, I'll take off all my clothes. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I'm not reading too much into this one. And that's before she actually strips. And I think is basically wearing a, a sleeveless bathing suit kind of thing, you know. But I was just like, this is a weird, this is a weird choice. And it's very, like, it's very grimy. It, it's a very strong speakeasy atmosphere, which a pub isn't. It's, you know, you can, you can get food. It's a pretty warm and welcoming chatty environment amongst having a pint with friends even if it's you know a little bit seedier it's not uh necessarily hey let's go in and have you know some demon rum and watch someone strip i hope i'm not increasing the rating on uh your podcast too much discussing the great mouse detective of all <laughs> so what i get from you Corey, is that the great mouse detective is kind of double layered for you of your childhood love of Sherlock Holmes and your love of London. Yes. And as you mentioned before, they get some things really right and some things really wrong. You want to speak into that some more? <laughs> uh, yeah. One thing, obviously, being that the Thames is a salty river, which just made me so happy. In the toy shop scene, there are little decorated tins and you can read the decorations. Like uh, one says, Dr. Gaston's liver pills. And there's one that I think is a toy soldier that's labeled like Royal Guard in uniform. And the atmosphere, they nailed it really well. I love the fog, which London isn't usually uh, as foggy these days as it would have been in you know the Victorian era. 
but I love the atmosphere. I love the street lamps. I think they did full job. Uh, the chimneys catching kind of the, but you know, Disney would have had some experience with that with Mary Poppins, but I really do love how they capture the chimneys, the interior decorating. Whew. As far as atmosphere goes, I think they nailed it. I think it's beautiful. And obviously I'm sure there are historians who would be able to say more about what's good about it or what doesn't work. But for me as an amateur, I thought it was gorgeous. Oh, whenever something can be deduced visually, this is just something I loved, they show it. So if something can be deduced visually on screen, they're like, okay, here's the information and they let the viewer decide. That's not about London, that's more just a note connected to Sherlock Holmes because Doyle famously did not do that. He would keep information from his readers, which is cheating in mystery writing. So extra points to them for that one. At one point, I think they come across Blackfriars Bridge and it's identifiable from the street names on the map that's shown in passing. Yeah, there, I mean, the roads aren't perfect on the map because I was so excited that I could recognize the bridge that I went and checked, but still, I only, I only noticed because I was looking for like some specific landmarks and areas I'd lived and I'm like, oh, they missed the vicarage. So that kind of thing. Uh, but as far as detail goes, I was, I was pretty darn happy uh, with that. Those are a lot of bits they got well. There are um, a couple of bits that were a little quirky, for one thing. Uh, he basically, Radigan, um, part of his nefarious plan is to install an automaton of the mouse queen, which if she actually is based off of Queen Victoria, uh, that woman was fierce. Like, I, I don't picture her being held hostage and replaced so much as uh, beating up whoever tried it. He tries to replace her with an automaton and declare himself the royal consort, which is not a position of power. <laughs> Watching this as a kid, I'm like, oh, he's basically going to, you know, attempt a coup and crown himself king, which I think is what they were trying to convey. But because they use the term royal consort, I'm like, wait, he's just going to install an automaton as the queen and say that he's her lover and he expects power from this because that's not that's not how it works. <laughs> um, for anyone who's curious, I mean, even with Queen Elizabeth II today, her late husband was not king, he was a prince. And that's more how that would work. If you have a king who's the monarch and he marries a woman, then she might become the queen, The I think the term is the queen mother, if, you know, they have children. But it's, it's a it's a different role. It's not like a prince and a princess get married and become a king and queen. So him being like, oh, well, I, I, I'm married to this robot who you all believe is your queen, or I'm, I'm, you know, the consort to this robot who you all believe is your queen is a uh, weird choice for an attempt at power. He probably would have been better served uh, trying to use his immense charisma and pull to get a role in parliament. But, you know, uh, he wasn't looking that far ahead, I guess. To be fair, that would be a very strange <laughs> way to take a Disney film. Yes, like that's we true. have a rat parliament, you know, a mouse. <laughs> we have a mouse parliament, and uh, yeah, I want to know more about the mouse, mouse parliament, politics, the rat prime minister, and the, <laughs> the rat prime. Minister. <laughs> yeah, but going, oh, he's a royal consort. Is like, okay, so he's a. Uh, 
that the lover of the monarch does not necessarily mean you have power in that country. This is true. And, you know, I never picked up on that word as a kid. Yeah, no, it's the, it's, I a, think, it's a weird one. Yeah, it is a weird one. Because, yeah, looking at that now, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay, he wants to be the uh, royal consort. Got it. Oh, another thing. The stripper mouse. She's an American. Oh, my goodness. I didn't notice that. You're right. Yeah. So thanks for the continued international reputation that we're all loose. No offense to, you know, but it's, it, it just, I was like, oh my gosh, why, why, uh, I have questions. I also have questions about the bat henchman's accent. I have questions about a lot of the accents, in fact, because anytime someone was villainous, with the exception of Radigan, they had a thicker regional accent. <laughs> Which I think is American shorthand, because I've noticed yeah. that in most, especially children's films, for some weird reason, and I mean, our listeners have heard me rant about this before, but yeah, it, it does seem to be a regional British accent seems to indicate henchmanship. <laughs> I, I'm just making up that like word. You're not, even, you're not even evil enough to be like pure evil. You're like evil's goofy sidekick. And that, exactly. I, I just find that disappointing because these are real these are real ways real people speak i mean not all of them that bad i have no idea this was actually um a problem i had with the newer mary poppins film mm. not that it wasn't kind of quirky in the original with uh, dick van dyke i don't love it when people put on what's what's sometimes known as a mock me accent if they're kind of playing up a stereotype uh of a specific east london dialect that part is something I wouldn't have noticed as a kid. But as an adult, it left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth that it's like, oh, uh, regional specific means evil. And uh, RP, or, you know, received pronunciation, which would be what a lot of Americans would associate with uh, probably BBC announcers, a lot of them, it would be uh, kind of a more, a more posh accent. Uh, that means either, you know, one of the good guys, or at least a very powerful and interesting bad guy. Yeah, but that's this isn't the only film that does that. Unfortunately, no. No. Um, oh, incidentally, when he becomes the queen consort on a much perkier topic, uh, his robe has a snuggie for his tail, and I just love that detail. <laughs> I missed that, too. It's so good. <laughs> he has, like, an ermine snuggie. Um, <laughs> Taking this to some of the more uh, positive, not necessarily positive, just not negative quirks of this movie. <laughs> I find it very interesting that the only two songs are the stripper mouse and the bad mm -hmm. guy. And I, cool. I love Radigan's bad guy song. It's, it's, it's so huge. It's show stopping. Uh, I always really liked it, even as a kid when I was scared of him. But I, I do think that's an, an interesting choice because it's not a musical and uh, the stripper song would be considered diegetic. Yeah. Which means it is a song that exists in the world. It's, it's not like, uh, oh, say in Beauty and the Beast, you know, when Belle is singing, I, 
you know, I want to adventure in the great ride somewhere, we read that as this is her thoughts and her feelings. We don't actually read it as an audience, as this woman randomly walking around singing to no one in particular with or without music playing. So like in the, in the bar scene, there is a band playing music. So it's obviously, it's obvious where the music is coming from. They are performing a show. Everything is actually happening. But then you have Radigan's song, which is really (laughs) over the top and huge, you know, big musical number. And you could kind of, that's not necessarily diegetic. (laughs) I love him so much. Not unless all of his henchmen are taking the time to, like, practice this with him. Um, Right. (laughs) Or, you know, this is like his little, they, they just all know and love this song and it's kind of, you're all joining in at a football game or something with that. The Beauty and the Beast one, since you mentioned it, uh, it reminded me of a post I saw someone make where they they said uh, it was Belle going, here goes the baker with his tray like always. It was Belle singing lines of that song and one of the townspeople going, and there goes Belle singing her daily mean song about us. No. <laughs> But yeah, with, with Radigan, um, one thing that I think it's important to mention, and there are people out there who are much more knowledgeable and well-researched on this, but it would it would be remiss of me not to say something about it, is that Disney, among other companies, does have a real history of queer-coding villains. And Radigan can come across as extremely flamboyant. Yeah, so, so right. that it's it's worth mentioning. And the fact that he is the only other character given a major musical number in this mm. could also be their way of playing into that a little. Mm. Uh, more than a little. I think that it's important to mention because as a kid, you know, you don't necessarily pick up on those cues, especially as a kid in the 90s. You're oh, not yeah. picking up on a lot of those cues. As no. an adult watching it, I'm going, oh, so... I've, you know, watched video essays about Disney queer coding their villains. This is 100% what this is right now. And hmm, I've, I've heard uh, some commentators say that that's, I, it, it goes back to the Hayes code and to what was or wasn't allowed to be depicted in film. So if you were going to have a character who was queer, they almost had to be a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably a big part of why he has this just absolutely delightful and extremely catchy but very over-the-top musical number and a character like Basil they chose not to give any music at all I Mm -hmm. hadn't actually made that connection musically to the fact that there are only two songs in here until you said something even though I've watched this multiple times, I hadn't really ever questioned, is this or is this not a musical? So and I don't interesting. think it, it, I, no. it is. Some of the problems and some of the magic are because of the time it was being made. So at that, at that time, Disney was really, really, really struggling. Yeah. And a lot of the things that they were making were not being very well received. We, we look back on them. And remember them fondly. But at the time, they were dying. And so I think basically after the Black Cauldron, they st- 
started from square one of we have to change everything about the way we tell stories in our animation process because the Black Cauldron was such a bad failure. Uh, And so after that, there started being more like a like a formula that's where you you start getting the 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 disney renaissance so i like the great mouse detective because it's kind of weird and quirky and basil doesn't have an i want song like basically starting with the little mermaid every main character has an i want song and basil hasn't but the villain does (laughs) that's one other thing that i can say um about this film is that I feel like it really loved the source material because I, if Mm -hmm. you were doing like a modern Sherlock Holmes adaptation, it would really be stretching the limits of the imagination to have Sherlock singing an I want song because what he wants is just to get to the truth, not basically not be bored by whatever the solution might be, not just drawing that from the BBC stuff that came out more recently, but you know, he, he wants a puzzle. He wants to solve the puzzle and as the stories go on, you realize that he also wants what he would consider a fair outcome to the situation. Mm-hmm. Whether or not, interestingly, that totally falls within the realm of the law. He doesn't need an I want song if this character is Sherlock Holmes, because what he wants is more or less to solve the mystery without his... Gosh, I need to look up this character. I'm so embarrassed that I can't remember his little Watson's name. Um, I remembered it. Dawson. Dawson. I knew yes. it sounded similar. It Dawson. sounds so, I so he's similar. he's a physician too, isn't he? Yes, he is. It's, yeah. Well, and see, this is what's interesting is I feel like the Great Mouse, you were talking about source material. The yeah. Great Mouse Detective is Sherlock Holmes in Mouse Drag. Yeah. Basil of Baker Street, the book series I had more akin to Watership Down oh. than Sherlock Holmes. Of Whoa. yes, he was a detective, and not necessarily in the more in that the there wasn't a lot of really strong personalities that I remember. And and again, I haven't read these books since I was ten. That was a long time ago, and I was struggling with reading at the time. So. I could be very wrong, but I, that's the reason I didn't read very many is they would logically figure things out. And I, I don't even remember if Basil had a sidekick like Dawson, probably, but it, uh, the, the one I remember the, the strongest is like, they find this lost colony of feral mice or like wild a wild mouse tribe. They're not feral. They're just a wild mouse tribe that isn't civilized or whatever. That's, that's what I, the story I really remember. I don't remember strong personalities. So when I watch the great mouse detective, I look at that and I say, Oh, this is definitely way more Sherlock Holmes than it is the books about Basil because the, I think they toned it down, but you, definitely get Sherlock's like manic depressive disorder (laughs) in the Disney Basil. Whereas I have no memory of that. And, and, you know, it could have been because I was 10 and I didn't know what manic depressive was, 
but <laughs> but I remember it being kind of boring, and that's why I stopped reading them. And that's the Great House Detective is a lot of things, but it's definitely not boring. No, this is this is very true. Um, I will say that they committed the uh, crime, the fictional crime of having Watson as like a fat, affable, incompetent character. Like, not extremely incompetent. So apologies <laughs> to Dr. David Q. Dawson, fictional <laughs> character. But <laughs> that was one thing that growing up reading The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, I really appreciated from the BBC adaptation um, when I first saw it, is that Watson was competent and was a military surgeon, just as he was in the books. The popular imagination is kind of its own thing oh no but they they definitely carried with that uh like plump affable uh not necessarily on top of it though mm -hmm. i will say that in the moment that basil is absolutely despairing it's dawson who goes hey i i believe in you i think that you can still find a way around this and as someone who's my favorite part of the books is this deep relationship and friendship between Watson and Sherlock that grows over the course of the books and that you kind of get in little flashes, especially if Watson's endangered. I love that they managed to incorporate that. That felt like a very good, healthy, balanced approach. And even as you're mentioning manic depressive disorder, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that because that is something with the Sherlock Holmes character, just how he responds to different situations, it gets played different ways in different adaptations. I think sometimes they make him too much of a jerk when in the books, uh, some of his moments of most kind of seeming like a callous jerk were when he was talking to someone who he knew was a murderer um, mm. or he knew was abusing their family. I kind of appreciate that Basil you know, he has he has a couple moments near the beginning of coming across as pretty callous, but I appreciate that they were also partly because it's a cartoon, but willing to show more of that that human side and that warmth. I especially like the relationship between him and the little girl because he obviously Olivia. does not care about children, <laughs> and he's like, "What do I do with this child?" Uh, but you know, at the end it's so obvious he really cares for her and wants the best for her. And, and that's, that's really cute. He's such an unusual Disney protagonist because I think he, he never really gets over his flaws. No. And, and he is very manic depressive. I am totally with you in the whole, when he despairs, watching that as a child is very, very disturbing because you know, he's the grown-up in this situation and the grown-ups don't give up like that. And then watching it as an adult is like, wow, you know, the way he swings from, you know, he's just so excited and da da da, -da to crashing down so deeply. Yeah. It's also still kind of, it's like a little disturbing because that's not something we see as heroic especially since it's basically Dawson building him back up again and that's where that formula thing comes in is we we have formulas for how heroes are supposed to work now 
And there, there is literally in every screenplay writing book I've ever read, there's a thing called the dark night of the soul or the dark yeah. tea time of the soul, if you care to. <laughs> well, that's, that's the Sunday name. Of, that's the name of a fun book. Douglas Adams. Exactly. It's a Douglas Adams book. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, but in that dark moment, they have to like face their flaws and all this stuff. And then they, they rise up and get out of it. And I think it's, you could make an argument that Basil does follow that, but it really does feel like Dawson is like slapping him across the face going, okay, look, it, your pity party is, is not helping. Yeah. And, and again, we don't really see that as heroic to have someone else. And especially the character of Dawson, who's shown in this particular telling to not be super intelligent or, or even very brave to be the one to, you know, brush off the main character and push them back into the fight. I think it's pretty fair uh, to the spirit of the stories in that these are two flawed characters who are encouraging one another and getting through some insane circumstances together. Watching it both as a child and today, the fact that they're in a mousetrap and are about to maybe get squished is like, okay, yeah, that's bad. They'll find a way. But Basil basically resigning himself to his fate and just being sad that he brought his friend into this with him is terrifying as a child because it, it is you, you almost want to be like no no come on come on like when are you when are you going to solve this when are you going to and if you're if what you're used to um the dark tea time of the soul uh another term would be the nadir so there's the zenith or zenith i can't uh, my vowels get weird um and then the nadir and it's this it's the pit it's the it's the down point of the story and this story has more than one because you have probably arguably the largest one where he thinks that they've failed and they're about to die and leave this child with no recourse to get reunited with her father or leave her in the hands of rat again i'm trying to remember the situation there but basically that they've they failed and then there's the other one in the clock tower scene where again Radigan turns full feral and that's kind of an interesting that's just it's just kind of an interesting scene from a visual perspective and that you have these two characters who have been very human typed um they're anthropomorphic uh rodents but they've still felt very much like humans going around um much like you would get in a lot of other disney properties but in this fight like the gloves literally come off of both characters and you see that they have these rodent claws and they're scrambling and it's just it, it was a really interesting visual decision mm -hmm. to kind of convey this extra level of um basically of primal fear which again is like wow interesting choice for a kids movie but that that is part of what you know that i love anastasia too i like it when they're willing to make like maybe some scarier decisions. We both agreed that this is a, a really fun Flawed, movie to watch. Movie. <laughs> what age would you show your kids this? Oof. Um, I would want them to be old enough to be able to tell me about their feelings. Again, this is in an imaginary world where I have children or I'm responsible for some. Because I think that it is a movie that 
you want to be able to have that conversation about, oh, adults don't always know what what's going on exactly, which is true and is an important thing to learn. But I would want them to be at an age where they could verbalize that. That depends on the kid, but I would say anywhere between uh, six and eight would probably mm. be old enough to be able to really talk about some of the more complex feelings, but still have hopefully grown up in what feels like a pretty safe world. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm thinking back, I watched it before I read my first Sherlock Holmes book because I think that was why I knew the name. Um Sherlock Holmes is that, you know, my mom had kind of explained to me a bit. So I probably watched it when I was four or five and then read uh, Speckled Band when I was six or seven, probably six to eight. But again, I'm not a, I'm not a child development specialist. I don't know. Oh, no, that, that's what I wanted is yeah. your, your personal opinion, because it's, it's very interesting. I started showing movies to my neighbor's kids. And it's really interesting suddenly when you, especially if you know them, when you're responsible for putting on a movie, some people don't care and they're just like, oh, it's rated G, that should be fine. But I I liked to pick ones that I felt were appropriate and it made me think about movies in a completely different way. Many movies that I love and enjoy, it was like, oh, let's hold off on this for a little bit. Even ones that are rated G or PG, and are generally thought of as children's movies. And yeah, and part of that could be my own bias of, like, I remember watching this at four and being really freaked out. Let's not do that. Even though maybe this four-year-old might be able to take it. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> um, I personally, I wouldn't show it to my goddaughter uh, right now. She She's three. Now, I would probably say, depending on the child and their maturity, uh, six to eight. Though I do remember that um, this film had me completely convinced I wanted to be a detective. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. a scientist. Never mind that it has... Oh, oh, 100%. Uh, actually, I'm wondering now how much credit I should put to the fact that I went into the sciences as my degree, even though I objectively love the arts. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive. But I wonder how much I, credit I should give to the fact that I love this character and this idea and it got me into Sherlock Holmes which got me into other mystery novels like the Bugman novels by Tim Downs where the character has some similar emotional maturity issues but is a you know is a genius and yeah and now it's time for random recommendations um well I was going to recommend an entirely different property but after having this discussion, I would recommend The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. To anyone who hasn't read them yet, there's some that are really weird uh, and are real wild ride. You know what? You don't have to read them in a specific order. Uh, it starts with a study in Scarlet, but again, you my, my first one was The Adventure of the Speckled Band. And I recommend giving that a shot. Just see if you like it. They're short stories. I find the characters really endearing. If you want to go for something a little longer that I'm sure most people are familiar with, go ahead and read The Hound of the Baskervilles. It's it's a good book, and you learn how epic Holmes is at apparently everything, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you so much, Corey, for talking about this movie that you love. Thank you, Kendra. 
It is a quirky, weird one. I'll acknowledge that. But then again, it seems like that's kind of a theme on the films that I really enjoy and you let me talk about. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Patchwork Girl and Friends. I hope you enjoy the artwork I make for each and every episode, which you can see on social media like Instagram and Facebook. You can support the podcast on Patreon. And don't forget to send me a random quote using the Anchor app. Next time on The Patchwork Girl and Friends. Today we're going to be talking about one of your favorite movies, I believe, which is Ben-Hur. Yeah.